I don't know if a person who your mind is running all the time, but my mind, my mind is running all the time. And I want to share with you what I'm doing. And I think it's basically what everybody is doing. So I'm going to describe your brain for you this morning. Three things going on all the time in your brain. Number one, you're taking in all the information around you. All the facts, all the things that happen in your life, it's evidence. That's what I call it. You see that category of evidence. I'm just taking in information all the time about everything. And you are too. You see it, you watch it, you hear it, it goes into your head and it's evidence. This is happening all around me. Then it shifts to the middle category. You see that? You begin to interpret or read what you are seeing and hearing. You interpret all that information and you make a conclusion from it and then you act on the basis of it. This is going on all the time. Now, I'll say this, that the, the most important part of this is the interpretation. Because if you, if you interpret the information wrong, you will act wrong. And we do this all the time. In fact, this is every comedy sitcom's plot. I remember as a kid watching, this is going to age me a little bit, Three's Company. Does anybody remember Three's Company? This was every episode of Three's Company. It became every episode of Friends. It became every episode of Hallmark movies right now for the holidays. People are taking in some information around them and they misinterpret it. They didn't hear it right. They didn't understand it in context. And they form a conclusion and they act on it and they're always wrong. And then somebody has to correct them. This is the way it works. Okay, so this past Wednesday, I'm going up to meet Melissa and Kenneth. We're going to go up to the last meeting of this Bernie meeting I'm in. And as I get across the four, I, thank goodness I love Arkansas. Your 412 is four lane. But as soon as you hit the bridge at Missouri and Arkansas, it becomes two-lane. And as soon as I get there, there's a big old truck, a gray 18-wheeler. And he just comes to almost a halt. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? We were cruising along just fine, and we get to gray truck guy. It's a gray truck, and I just call him gray truck guy because I don't know his name. So it's gray truck guy, and he slows down. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And so I peer out over here and try to pass him. And then I realize it's not gray truck guy at all. It's, it's the brown car woman in front of him, actually. I thought it was a truck guy who's responsible, but it's the, it's the brown car lady. And then when we finally get to a curve where I, and, then, and then the straight spot, I'm going to pass him now. And then I realize there's a half a mile parade behind a green combine guy. That's who really is responsible for all. I'm misinterpreting everything, and I'm getting mad at a guy. It's not even his fault. You ever do this? You misinterpret? Melissa's a little short, a little bit snippy with me, and I'm thinking, wow, what is wrong with her today? And I look, at the, I look at the calendar to see if it's her birthday or my anniversary or something. Did I miss something? I don't know. Is it me? And I, I find out it's not me at all. But if I act on that and I get snippy with her, and then we got this war going on all day, all because I misinterpreted what she was experiencing. We do this with our kids. We do this with our employer. We do this all the time. And often in counseling, it gets more serious than this. I became a perfectionist very young, and it became stressful in college. And so we do some counseling with some people, and this guy says, listen, I think you need to figure out why you're a perfectionist. And I kind of figured out how I interpreted my parents. I had to kind of be like a, a, a counterpart to my brother who was a little bit of a troublesome person at that time. And so you have to be the perfect kid. You know, that's how the, the kids respond. And it turns out it was a totally wrong interpretation of what my parents did totally wrong and that it was totally unnecessary but that's how a kid interpreted the evidence and it formed his actions 
And by counseling, I was able to uh, locate that and fix that. Misinterpretation's a big deal. It can change a lot of things, and it can alter what you actually do. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we have an example of it. Listen to this verse. I just got to say I'm using the NIV because verse 3 to verse 12 in 2 Thessalonians 1 is one great, big, long, run-on Greek sentence. And every translation struggles with how we break it up, and I like the NIV for that reason. So here's verse 5. All this, here's our word evidence. They were taking in information in their own context. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. All right, so what's the evidence? What is it on all this is evidence? You've got to back up. So back up to verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and the trials you are enduring. This church is going through more than its fair share of persecutions for the faith and trials for the faith. And they keep going on and on and on, and they get worse and worse. Next dream. And they says, all this stuff is evidence. These persecutions and trials are evidence. I agree with you, Paul says, next screen. He says, I agree with you. The church has experienced a lot of stuff, but here's what they were saying. They interpreted, the Thessalonians said, the church, the church must be compromised. We must not be doing something wrong. All this persecution comes because we're not living right. We got our faith wrong. We, we, we just aren't strong enough. We aren't being faithful to God. Something's wrong with us as a church because we're going through persecution. Do you ever feel that way? A bunch of wrong things go on in your life, and you're like, I must not be living right. Is that really the right interpretation? What this led to was that they began to lose their hope and their confidence and their faith, and he deals with that in chapter 2. But right now he's saying to you, I want to tell you something. Your evidence is right. Here's where Paul comes in. And he says, let me tell you my view. You are experiencing trial and persecution for your faith. But it's not a sign that you're doing something wrong. It's a sign that something's right. How can persecutions and trials be an evidence that you're doing okay? This is what Paul says. It's evidence that God's judgment on the world is right. Now I'm gonna tell you, we're gonna have a series of verses go on here, but I'm gonna kind of paraphrase them as we go through them. Here are the things that God in his word has said to us about the world that we live in. The world is made up of people largely opposed to the will of God. They're enemies of God, they're opposed to God, they exchange God for other deities that are really created things, and all the world is under the control of the evil one. You believe that? The world we live in, the world we live around, the people who are godless people, they are under the control of the evil one. That's what John says in 1 John. So the world is full of people who are opposed to God. That's the way the world is. Jesus says when he came in as the light of the world, the world did not like him, did not receive him because they don't like the light. They would rather continue to live in the darkness. And the world, Jesus says, hated me before it hated you. And it's going to hate you. The world is going to hate you. That's what he says, John chapter 15, right before he leaves. He says we lived among this world at one time in Ephesians chapter 2. We lived in this world we were opposed to the uh, things of God. We were enemies. And then we left the world because God in his mercy offered us the gospel. 
The world didn't receive Jesus, didn't receive God that killed him. So God offers the gospel to people saying the world is in a place where it's going to go to the judgment of God. And if you want to escape this, respond to the gospel and come into the kingdom of light. 1 Peter chapter 4. You've spent enough time in the past doing all those things that unbelievers do. And he gives a list of them. And they're surprised that you no longer join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. Here's what happens. The world is opposed to God. You lived in this world at one time. You were opposed to God at one time. And then you obeyed the gospel. You heard the message of God's kingdom. And you exited the world. And you chose to live kingdom. This is what it means when you are immersed in the waters of baptism. You are no longer living in the world you are kingdom people which means you don't live like they do and they are not going to like you and they're going to come after you in some way and make their disfavor clear that's what God says to us so much so that he says an all-encompassing thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3 I want you to read this with me read the words there's not many you ready Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you desire to live a godly life in Christ? Raise your hand. What's true of you from this verse? You will be... Is there room for wiggle here? It's the way it's going to be. When you leave the world, you're making a judgment on them. You're agreeing with God's judgment, and you come into the kingdom, and that world is not going to appreciate that. And so we sing the song, the world behind me, the cross before. Really? If they're behind you, sometimes they come after you. That's what the gospel means. The gospel is good news because the bad news is the world's against God. The good news is you don't have to stay that way. Sermon on the Mount talked about this. The cross is about this. You know what that means? When you are persecuted, God is proven right. When you are persecuted, God's wisdom about the judgment against the world and how it will treat his people is proven right. So when you're persecuted... It is an affirmation of your faith, not an undermining of it. It proves it. But that's not the only thing. All this is evidence. What all this is not just the persecutions. All this also is, back up if you would. I mean, keep going to the next verse. Sorry. Your faith is growing more and more, and the love of all that you have for one another is increasing despite the fact that you are suffering. How can you explain a church that's standing for God, being persecuted by the world, and it's continuing to mature and grow? The entire world is targeting the Thessalonian church. Their neighbors are, t are targeting them, persecution and trial. And yet, in the middle of all that, their faith continues to grow. That shouldn't happen. It is happening because that's also a promise from God. Listen to these promises. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, God blesses, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, because they will. When others revile you because you're a kingdom person, you will be blessed. God is going to sustain you. God is going to make you thrive. When they get all kinds of evil spoken against you, falsely for my sake, rejoice and be glad. I want you to learn to rejoice in this. This is a sign God's telling the truth and God is right and that I'm living for him. Persecution affirms your kingdom status in the midst of a world that's opposed to God. That's the way it works. 
In this world you shall have tribulation, Jesus says. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world and I'm in you. And it's interesting, isn't it? When he sent, in the context of this, this, this verse right here, when he was about to leave and tells them all this persecution's come upon you, but I'm going to leave something inside of you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he puts a nickname on him. Do you know what he called the Holy Spirit in that passage? The Comforter. Okay, so what do you need a Comforter for? Because in this world, you will be forced to be positions of discomfort. And I'm going to put something inside of you from me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 and a fourth days a year, right? Every single day at every moment, I'm going to put my comforter in you because you're going to need it. And then Peter stands up one day and he says, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. We are suffering. We're paying the cost. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you something here, Peter. No one who loses their house, because some will. Your house could be taken. No one who loses their house, no one who loses their brothers, your family will disown you. Sometimes for the sake of the gospel, your family will disown you. You'll lose your brothers, you'll lose your sisters, you'll lose your father, you'll lose your mother. Everything that you've known, the land, your property, you might lose it for my sake, he says. I came to split families, not to keep everybody wholesome and pure for you, right? You will receive a hundred times as much in this present life. You know what he's saying? This is how I sustain you. I'm not going to just miraculously deliver you from every trouble, but I'm going to bring a family to you so that if you're in a family, it says, fine, you're going to be a Christian. We disown you, and you lose your brother and your mother and your father. He says, I'm going to bring you into a community of people, and I'm going to give you a hundred more of them. I'm going to sustain you with hundreds of mothers and fathers who love you and are devoted to you and related to by blood too, but just by Christ's blood, not physical. I'm going to take care of you. I want to show you an example of this from Hebrews. The preacher is saying to the people in front of him, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you became a believer and you were immersed and you named the name of Jesus from your lips as the king of your life, you endured a hard struggle of sufferings. Welcome to the kingdom. Here's your suffering sword, right? You were sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes you were mocked and you were ridiculed for your belief. But sometimes you were just standing there with those who were so treated. Not, you, you have people standing with you. You never do this alone. You have a whole community of people holding you up. And he said, that's how God blesses us in this. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully uh, uh, accepted the plundering of your property since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Paul says you do have a lot of evidence of suffering and persecution, but the interpretation you're making is not true. It's a sign that God's right. It's a sign that he's holding you up. And you need to realize that you need to celebrate because it means you're worthy of the kingdom. You understand the value of the kingdom. The kingdom will cost you something. It is like a treasure in a field that a person finds and then he sells everything he has to buy that field. But I got to tell you, in order to hold on to that treasure and keep it, it's going to cost you something over time and you're willing to pay it. We know what this is like. You ever see that veteran who went to a war somewhere, came back and leg gone, he has a replacement leg and he suffered that all for the sake of his country? Does he hate his country and do we look upon him with reproach? No, we look with great honor and he finds that a sacrifice for his country. You know this with parents, 
special needs children that cost them such exhaustion and sacrifice, and they don't resent it. It's part of what they are. That's their parenting badge. The same for the kingdom. It is worth whatever it costs. And that's a little scary to us as Americans. Because if the kingdom is worth as much as it costs and it's not costing us anything, what does that say? Put these two things together with a story from Acts chapter 2. I hear, I hear the apostle John saying something. Peter and John are among the twelve, and they're all in Jerusalem there in the days right after the great Acts 2 sermon and the great response of people being baptized. And it says... The church continued to grow, but I want you to notice what it says about this church. Day by day, they attended the temple. They even went to the temple because that was the only place all these people could meet at once. Breaking bread in their homes, they went around house to house eating together, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor. They had favor with everybody. Everybody loved these people. And it was growing. The Lord was adding day, day by day. And Peter and John are just like, man, look at this. The back, look at the backboard back there. The attendance is going up and the offering is going up. Things are going great because this is what the kingdom should do. When God blesses, this is what it looks like. But John backs up just a minute. Hold it, hold it. You guys were with Jesus with me. You remember what Jesus said? We're going to be persecuted and brought before synagogue rulers. We're going to be brought before leaders. We're going to have to defend the truth. And we're going to face persecution and great pain for our faith. And all this, we're, this is great. I love all this stuff. But where's all that? Is something wrong with us? Because where's all that? That's what he told us was going to happen. John's a little concerned, but he need not be. Because once you turn the page over to Acts 3, here it comes. Acts 3, they heal a lame man and all sorts of things go wrong. Chapter 4, they have to defend themselves. Chapter 5, by the end of it, notice what it says here. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council. It's, oh, Lord, please help us. We're in trouble. They're going to come after us. We're so scared. That's not what it says. Because they know what Jesus said. They were beaten warned they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy there's our word to suffer dishonor for the name there's something honorable but having to pay a cost for something that you hold dear and now john's saying now i know what he's talking about i love this insight from paul your persecutions are signs that God is right. It affirms your faith. And your, the way that you're growing in the midst of them is a sign that God's taken care of you. And here's my concern as we turn now to Valley View, because now we're out of the text and we're coming to now, and I'm going to say to Valley View, is anybody here a little bit concerned about our lack of suffering? Anybody have a little bit of concern that we don't have a great enough tension between our faith and our comfort level in the world? Does anybody else look at this passage and go, oh, are we? Because we don't really suffer much. Okay, so here's how we can interpret it. Here's how we interpret We don't suffer much because we're living right. We're living faithful, and you know we live in a Judeo-Christian kind of residue, legal area. We kind of live in a world that kind of religious freedom, and because of all that, we're living right, and we're being blessed, and that's why we're not being persecuted.
But you heard the passage just like I did. I don't think that's the right interpretation. Maybe it is. But I wonder if there's a second one we can make. Are we engaging in compromise to maintain our comfort level in the world and so we're able to sustain some semblance of a faith to Scripture, but we're also able to be comfortable in the world we live in and we're kind of, we're kind of dulling this down a little bit so that they can live friendly? Is it possible that we're doing that? I'm not saying we're sadistic and we want to go around getting beat up by people for our faith. Keep a belt that we put a notch in every time we have to suffer something. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we're dulling down the potential for suffering. Okay, so, uh, you know, I know we're not going to suffer like, uh, you know, we, talk, we sang faith of our fathers, they were in, di- in dungeons and all that. And it's not even faith, faith of our fathers, it's faith of our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world. We have plenty of brothers and sisters in the rest of the world suffering terribly for their faith. We don't know about it. We kind of keep it out of our heads, you know, but it's happening in the world, in other parts of the world. This is happening in terrible levels, right? We just kind of don't know. But, but what's our persecution? Can I, can I just kind of, I, I, I have this struggle every time. It's like, okay, we talk about this and it becomes like, well, one of these days we might have to. But what are the persecutions that we might actually face in our world? Let me give you a couple. Fear of missing out. FOMO, it's called, right? It's a social media thing. It's one of the reasons why this generation is the most anxious generation in the history of the planet. They look at all those things people are doing out there on social media, and they realize they're not doing all of that, and so they're missing out on something. Somehow I'm missing out on something. It may be their friend group doing stuff, didn't invite them to it, and they've got this horrible pain in their heart over that or it could just be look it's available to some people in the world and I don't get all that whatever it is it's a fear of missing out and it's a very real pain and I have an argument to make we should be missing out on some of what the world offers there are some things that we should tell ourselves that's interesting and it's even enticing it's even appealing to my inner self But because of my faith, I have to miss out on that. And it makes me feel a little bit on my inner man, a little disgruntlement, a little bit unsettled. But but that's what my faith would demand of me. I I think, y'all, we should be missing out on some stuff. I don't want to list it all, and I certainly don't have the judgment to make that. But can I tell you parents something? Parents should sometime uphold the standards of God in such a way that they keep their kids from participating in some of the things of the world. And they tell them, not because I said so, but because our Lord has told us how to live. We can't do that. And your kids should sometimes hate your guts. And you let them. If your kids never hate you for saying, no, we can't do that, our Christian faith won't allow it, something's not right. You want to be their friend, I get it. You can't. It's the suffering of your kids because they're the ones who have to go and live out 
that limitation. They're suffering, and that is legitimate suffering for the faith, and we need to teach them. If you're a baptized young person, there are some things off limits just because it's against the nature of God and his character. And when you suffer and your, your parents refuse to back down and they make you, they back you up in that suffering, don't blame your parents. That's God's thing. And it's your time to count yourself worthy of the kingdom. You actually have to pay something for your faith. That's what God says. And by the way, I've been in this position, and parents, that's your suffering too. Because I know what you do when your kids go out and they hate your guts for a few minutes or a season. You go into a room and you cry your eyes out. And kids, that's what they do. They don't like it any more than you do. But they signed on for this. And they're going to be faithful to the God who put them in that position of authority. And they're going to fulfill it. And it's their suffering too. And don't you believe, don't you believe that they're loving this? Like I get to make you miserable. Not one parent I know likes that. They're suffering too. It's our suffering when we have to stand like that and you have to miss out on something. I believe when you go to work or whatever and everybody's talking about that movie or that show that's on all the time, nudity in it all on, terrible language all the time. I think when you can't participate because you won't let yourself by your faith watch that show, that's just a little bit of suffering. And you're like, well, that's not much no it's not much but when we won't suffer much how can we suffer a lot right and in heaven there's going to be this conversation and a panel discussion i'm going to sit right here right i'm going to represent our generation sitting right here and over here is polycarp from the first century burned at the stake for his faith he talks about i would not deny jesus no matter what they did even if they burned me at the stake and i was burned alive These people put in prison, faced terrible persecution. They all suffered terrible deaths. And it gets to me and I go, I couldn't go to the movie. (laughs) Do you see how dumb that sounds? The little bit of suffering we have to do. We should have some of it. This fear of missing out. I think prejudice should be something that we face sometimes, and we do. I'm aware of the books that talk about, you know, Christians are, um, Christians are blackballed in the world because of our, um, our, our, sometimes our vitriolic, arrogant stances, which I'm guilty of some of those. The tone, the attitude I sometimes exhibit, I get that, but, but here's, here's the thing. Uh, We do need to speak the truth in love. We do. We need to be gracious. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind. But even when you are, even when you're gracious and you've got the heart of Jesus and the tone of Jesus in your your demeanor and in your body and all that stuff, the words that you speak that are truth have a sharp edge that cuts in our world and you must allow it to cut. Gently, Lovingly, yes. But that truth hurts because it's, it's truth, it's the content. And sometimes just because you are a Christian, your very presence is judgmental to other people. And there's nothing you can do about that. 
So when you're around somebody cusses all the time, they say, sorry, let them apologize and let them clean up their language around you. It's a great moment of bringing light into darkness and don't, and don't just back up and say, oh, that's okay. No, 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 let them feel that consciousness. Let them cancel the, you if they need to. I don't want to be hurtful unnecessarily, but nor will I back down when inevitably the truth that I believe has to stand just where it is and it itself cuts. And finally, a last one I'd say very close to this is ridicule. You will be ridiculed. I mean, this is the one I think the most you'll see on a practical way. Called a bigot or an old-fashioned, narrow-minded. For college students over here, you're writing a report for some class or write some paper for some class, and, and you, you write from a Christian worldview, world and your teacher just doesn't like it and just, you know, docks you just for that. What do you do about it? Well, you go up the chain of command as you want to, but if it goes nowhere and you suffer a bad grade, suffer a bad grade. Count yourself worthy of the kingdom of God. I'm reminded when Tim Tebow just went public with the fact he wasn't going to have sex before marriage and he was laughed out of everything. And I'm convinced probably he didn't have any football career because he brings such tension to, to places with his Christian faith. But he won't have sex before marriage and all these people just make fun of him like it's physically impossible not to have sex before marriage. It is physically possible. You will not die from virginity. But you may feel like you're going to die from all the mockery from it. But he married Miss Universe 2017. So take a cold shower. Remind yourself your identity in Christ. And live a faithful life and let others just do all that mockery and ridicule. And that's just for one thing. There are so many others. And Paul says to us, it's evidence. When this stuff happens, it's evidence God's right. You are being sustained, and you are living a life worthy of the kingdom, and it's worth it. This kingdom is worth whatever suffering you have. And when our, I just feel this tension in me, right, right? Too easily able to hold that tension of my faith and comfort in the world together. Be very cautious if you never have to be inconvenienced because of your faith. Be, be very careful if you're never unsettled in your inner person, never having, to, never having to honor your faith in a way that makes you pay for it in some way. Beware of those moments. We are living in a world that's godless, trying to live as godly people. It is inevitable the clashes come. And Paul calls it evidence. I would hope that the way you live this week and the way you live last week, that if somebody wants to prove you're an alien who doesn't belong in this world, there's enough evidence to prove it. You know the way you live? It's like you belong somewhere else. The ethics you live by, it's like you belong somewhere else. When you bowed your knee to Jesus, made him king and were immersed, 
you became a citizen of somewhere else. And the evidence of that new citizenship should be very, very stark clear in a world that's godless and opposed to him. So this week, go out and prove you don't belong here. But if you do belong here, you've never transitioned out via the gospel from a godless world to the kingdom of God. This morning, you have another opportunity to do that. Name Jesus from your lips as your Savior. Be immersed, but I'm going to warn you. <laughs> Persecution awaits. So how should we interpret this passage, y'all? We don't really suffer, and I can't answer for everybody, this is not true. This, this evidence may not be true of your life, but we don't really suffer much for our faith, okay? Which interpretation's right, and what should you respond with? It's all up to you. You have to live with the interpretation you make based on the evidence of your life. Can you live with it? And if you're ready to switch kingdoms, we'd love to see a kingdom switch. And as we sing, to encourage you.